We are social animals. We evolved in tribes, in groups. We need to feel like there's a tribe around us. There's a small community around us. It doesn't have to be 100 people. It can be one, two, three, but we need to feel belonging, that we're a part of something. And that's an emotional feeling. And when we don't have it, our body goes into distress, whether we are aware of it or not. And that distress wears away and there's a big number and it predisposes us to cardiovascular disease, to dementia, to all kinds of things. So it's, it has a massive physiological consequence, even though it's a psychological condition. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. It's Violet Benson, your favorite meme queen and the big sis you didn't ask for, but need. Welcome to Almost Adulting. Almost Adulting. Are you ready? Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new Almost Adulting, the largest self-love podcast and movement, your number one destination for personal growth and mental health. I'm your big sister and your host, Violetta. So today, my special guest is Dr. Guy Winch. He is a psychologist, a speaker, and an author who is a leading advocate for integrating the science of emotional health into our daily lives. His book, including Emotional First Aid, which I recommend to everyone, has been translated into 20 languages. His TED Talks, which I constantly speak about, including How to Fix a Broken Heart, I'm obsessed with that one, have been viewed over 30 million times. Guy also hosts the popular podcast, Dear Therapist, where he does live sessions with guests to help them navigate life challenges. So make sure to check out his podcast. And he also received his doctorate in clinical psychology from New York University and is a member of the American Psychologist Association. Welcome, Guy. Thank you for having me. So today we are going to be diving in into dealing with rejection and failure in order to set you guys towards a more successful path in 2024. And he's going to be helping us figure out how to leave our old habits and negative thoughts in 2023, anything not meant for us back in 2023. And we will also be covering briefly how you can also include ketamine in that treatment practice it is currently a part of. So stay tuned. Anyway, sorry for the long introduction. Welcome, Guy. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming back. Okay. So since this month, I'm focused around kind of figuring out how to help people have the best year forward. One thing that a lot of us struggle with are rejection and failure and all those emotions that people consider negative, even though they're just part of the waves of emotions. But what would you say the most common emotions that we experience when we go through rejection and failure? Look, I think the most profound one and the most noticeable one is emotional pain, and especially with rejection. Rejections always hurt. And what's amazing to me, just when I think about the science of it, is that even the smallest rejections, like the the paper cuts of daily life, can really sting and annoy us. And what's really interesting to me is that sometimes if the person who rejected us is sometimes someone we don't even care about, we're not that even interested in, you know, but it's, it's that colleague from two cubicles down who we barely pay attention to. And they looked at the two people on either side of us and said, oh, we're all going to go for lunch, but they didn't include us and we don't care about them. It still really hurts. And that's the thing that's, I think, the primary experience of rejection and failure, which is the, the, really the emotional pain, which can be really sharp. What is up with the fact that after we experience a bit of rejection or failure, we stop trusting ourselves? Why, do we, why does that happen? 
So the other thing that's interesting about rejection is that really, and failure, is that the bulk of the damage, of the emotional, the psychological damage that's done, is truly self-inflicted. In other words, the initial rejection, the initial failure, it stings, it hurts, it's disappointing, you know, it, it lowers your sense of self-esteem and self-worth. But then what we do is, because it hurts, we do what we typically do when something hurts. We try and understand what happened. But our mind goes the wrong way. Instead of trying to understand, well, you know, it's a matter of timing or chemistry, or if it's a failure, well, I could have worked more harder, I could have prepared better. We go to self-blame. We go to self-criticism. We start reviewing all our faults. We start reviewing all our shortcomings. Well, I'm not this enough, or I'm too much of that, and of course I got rejected, and no one will ever want me. And when it's about failure, for example, we go to this generalization, right? We might have failed at something specific. I can't do anything. I'll never succeed in life. We make it so much bigger. And that internal self-criticism kind of continues the work of whoever the person was who rejected or, or, or the failure that happened. We almost like deepen the wound over and over and over again. And it's such a strong impulse. We almost all do it, even though it's the silliest and wrongest thing that we should be doing in that moment. So what would you say you should not do after being rejected? The most people probably do. Don't become self-critical. And, and what that means, and people say to me, well, but you know, you have to take responsibility or you have to take accountability. For example, in the case of failure, absolutely true. For example, when I applied to graduate school to become a psychologist, I applied to, I think, 10 schools and I got rejected by all of them the first time out. Every single one. Usually you, you get an interview if you pass a certain round, and then from there they make other selections. No interviews, no nothing. Most of them didn't even bother with a no. I mean, it, was, <laughs> it wasn't so good. And my initial instinct was, oh, wow, I can't get into graduate school. But I caught myself, and I realized, but they didn't reject me. They rejected my application, this, this folder of paper is what they rejected. Can I improve the application? Yes. The application is not me. What can I figure out to do better? And that's what I spent a year doing, improving, trying to figure out what to do better. And then I did it again and I got in. And that's the thing about failure. If you spend time going, well, I can't do it. If you give up, if you get demoralized, then you're not going to get anywhere. So the idea is you have to look at what you can do differently, but without the qualitative part of, I'm a loser, what's wrong with me, I'm so stupid, I'm just look at, I could have prepared better, maybe I shouldn't have gone to that party the night before the job interview, those kinds of thoughts, but neutrally, just like, yeah, factually, matter of fact, that's the case, here's what I can do differently, so, but without the, I'm an idiot. So is that how then you personally, you would say, handle rejection and failure? Yeah, but to be clear, I'm not immune. It stings and it hurts me too. And I will sometimes give myself, I mean, I would, depending on uh, the, the magnitude, the objective to me magnitude of the rejection of the failure, I would give myself a certain amount of time to feel crappy. I mean, I would literally say like, you know what, take 15 minutes, have a pity party, but then let's get it together. If it was something big, I'd say, okay, you're going to feel real shit for the rest of the day. Go at it. See you in the morning when we'll start over. That kind of, so I'll give myself permission because you can't just snap your fingers and wish away the difficult feelings. But I wouldn't avoid the, the thinking that I have to do afterwards to put a frame on it that doesn't blame me or doesn't diminish me. I like that. I like that you're saying that, be, that 
you're also including allowing ourselves to feel those other emotions because I used to continuously think only positive, only positive. And that's, I believe it's toxic positivity. And now I also do that thing where I learn it's okay. Throw yourself a self-pity party. No one else has to be invited. Eat your ice cream, take a nap, check out, and then get over it. And now, okay, what's the next step? And I think for me, it's been helpful. Yes, but I but like any party that you're throwing, make sure the guests don't stay too long. In other words, if you're throwing a self-pity party, make sure you kick out the self-pity by a certain time and you don't get lost in it or wallow in it for too long. So aside from your college experience, do you have any other time that you failed and then how you, what you did afterwards? <laughs> you're asking if I have any other time. <laughs> I have a long list of them. But here's an example most people don't know about me. I have, I've written three books. They're in 30 languages. They're successful. I'm now working on a fourth. I wrote for 14 years without getting paid a penny. 14 years. I had a box of rejections that I stopped saving because the box was full and I think my point was made because at some point I was going to look at the box and go, aha, I did it anyway. But at some point, one box is enough for that. So I just stopped keeping them. But 14 years of one rejection after the other one failure, after the other 14 years. So yes, I have experience fa <laughs> failing. Um, and, and how I got through that is, number one, I like writing. So I always say to myself, you're improving your skill, you're improving your craft. It's not that it was abject failure all the way. There were some almost, and this one was close, and that one was about to, and this, but ended up being no's and everything. Um, but it was just so there's a lot of work that's involved in kind of getting your motivation back up and, 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 you know, and revamping your confidence and, and kind of reformulating. And I had to do a lot of failure management over those 14 years. So what made you not want to give up after those 14 years? How would you, how, how were you able to continue going? Okay, so first of all, I'm, I'm stubborn. Let's, let's, let's admit that. Clearly I am if I kept going after 14 years. But I also, again, I had enough um, nuggets of encouragement along the way to make me think I'm not in completely on a fool's errand here. Like, you know, like I wouldn't be able to play in the NBA. I mean, I wouldn't try that for 14 years. You know, I'd try that for 14 seconds. But here there was enough encouragement, number one. B, I really loved writing. Got it's it. what I wanted to do in addition to being a psychologist. And so it, it, it wasn't a punishment to write. It was a punishment to submit because <laughs> that's when the rejections came. But the actual writing part I enjoyed. I would get into the projects. And so it was like, all right, let's think of a new project or let's tweak this one. So I would constantly work on creating the motivation, on keeping the, the, the confidence going. And when I got the good feedback once in a while, I, I really kind of dined on it. I really made sure it was nourishing. I kept it around. I kept referring to it a lot. Everyone thinks this is bad. That kind of thing. That's so inspiring. That actually reminds me of this author that my father loves so much, this Ukrainian Jewish author, that when he was writing in Russia, no one would publish his books for over 10 years. And then he moved to a different country to sell his books there. And then his books were off the shelf, sold out. And then Russia started to buy like a lot of his okay. books. And now he's just one of the best sellers in um, Eastern Europe. Amazing. It's wild. Okay, so when dealing with failure, the inner critic tends to amplify negative self-talk. So how can individuals challenge this internal dialogue and cultivate a more nurturing and supportive inner voice, which a lot of us struggle with? 
So, yeah, so first of all, when I have this conversation with people or some of my patients, for example, or people kind of, you know, out, out, out in life, as it were, people always believe that, no, but that internal critic, there's some utility to it. I'm, I'm, there's some value add there because it'll prepare me for next time or it'll make me keep trying. Like people have all, you know, these understandings of why that's a kind of useful thing to do. But if you break it down, none of them are true. It actually doesn't increase your motivation to be harsh with yourself. Again, to say, wow, I really could have prepared better than I had is fair. That's not harsh. To say, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. Why do I always do this to myself? That's not helpful. So the idea is that, you know, there's somehow, or it'll prepare me for next time by demoralizing you. It's not going to do, it's not going to help you. It's going to like make you feel less confident, not more. So first of all, that inner self-critic that we all have, it is very natural. It can even feel compelling and it is zero value add. It is sheer liability. So that's the first thing to know that like, yeah, you're going to have that voice. Do battle with it argue with it. Like when the writing stuff, when I would have that come in, I would go to those nuggets of like, no, I think this is great, or competitions that I placed very highly and go, no, look, not true. Here's evidence. Like I would argue with it. I wouldn't just listen to it. I would, I would, I would mount a resistance internally. Here's the second thing. And the second thing is also tricky because there's going to be a resistance to it, but that's self-compassion. And self-compassion is the basic principle that if your friend was going through the same thing, like if my friend was failing at writing for 14 years, I would never say to them, maybe you're not a great writer. Maybe you suck at writing. Maybe your writing level is at the level of a four-year-old, and that's why no one's in. Like, I would never go through that harsh litany. All I would say to them is like, wow, that must be really disappointing. I know how hard you try, but keep at it. I'm sure one day you would say compassionate reassuring things to the friend. But we don't do that to ourselves, and we should. Because when we're being a good friend to our friend, why not be a good friend to ourselves? It's the same principle, and one would say it's more important that I be a good friend to me even than just to others, not that they're mutually exclusive. But you have to be a good friend to yourself. There has to be this warm, supportive voice inside that on your team, that's on your side, that gets it and gets the pain, but wants you to keep going and wants you to succeed. So I like something that you said that was interesting, that when you were going through the 14 years of rejections with your writing, you would stop yourself and then you would look for, in a way, validations to prove that, no, I am a good writer, right? Looking competitions and things like that. So I think that's a really important keynote since our brains are so powerful. So when you you are going through that inner voice, if you, you are able to stop yourself by looking for validation and supportive facts from different areas where even by calling a friend or your parents and being like, mom, am I a shitty writer or not? Yeah. No, you're amazing. Okay, cool. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. But I want to say something about that. The, 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 the key thing that you said there is the word facts, because that's the thing. Uh, it's our unconscious mind that is lobbing all those kind of grenades at us and, and saying all the difficult things. And, and the problem is that our unconscious mind won't believe what we're saying if it's too far-fetched. Like if I didn't get anywhere with the writing and I said to myself, but I'm the best writer in the world, my unconscious mind will be like, oh, that's not really, no, 
that's not the case. So it has to be believable. That's why I went to, oh, here's a competition that I won, or here's a letter, or this thing got optioned, or I went to the factual stuff, because my brain can't, my unconscious mind can't deny that. But if I go too far beyond believability, yes, your unconscious mind will be like, oh, no, 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 no. You're not the most beautiful thing in the world if you got rejected, but I'm the best looking person. Mm. Your unconscious mind will be like, eh, in my case, maybe not so much. But, you know, the, the point being, if I say like, oh, but I have these great qualities that people always appreciate, I have a great smile, this, this, that, then your brain's like, yeah, fair enough on the smile. You know, and so you have to make it sound reasonable. It has to be like factual or believable. Got it. So then how can people truly discern between healthy self-reflection and being honest with themselves after failure versus getting caught up in a cycle of self-criticism or being overly delusional? <laughs> <laughs> so look, healthy self-reflection um, is, is something that's a little bit more practical and a little bit more um, applied. In other words, healthy self-reflection, what, what a failure or a rejection will make us do is it'll make us ruminate. It'll make us start obsessing. Because we're feeling rejected, so we're feeling hurt. It'll remind us of the other person who rejected us, which will remind us of that time three years ago when this and this happened, and that felt very, very rejecting. Which will, And we'll go down the rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole is of the emotion. We'll follow the emotion down the rabbit hole. Or if we're feeling really resentful that you know we failed at this thing, we're like trying to get this job, and we keep failing at getting this job or getting into school or whatever, and, and it will feel really resentful, and that'll remind us of the other times that we felt resentful, right. the other things that are not really fair, and why can't I catch a break, and, and we're down that rabbit hole. So healthy self-reflection, again, acknowledges the feeling, and you even want to stay with the feeling, see what you can learn from the feeling, like if you're feeling resentful, that's about unfairness, well, what do I feel, who am I comparing myself to, that's unfair, oh, this person that looks like, or for example, you know, that that uh, Russian writer, uh, Ukrainian writer who, who was writing, and like, you know, well, he made it successfully, and then you read about him, and you're like, oh, I see, he went through a lot before that. That happens. So it, it can help kind of inform you. But after that, it needs to be a little bit more practical to bump you out of that obsessive, ruminating kind of cycle. It's got to be like, all right, what do I need to do right now? The problem is I'm feeling demoralized about something, or I'm feeling like, you know, this, these dating apps are not working for me because I keep swiping and texting, and every time I go on a date, it doesn't go anywhere. Let me think what I can do. Maybe I need to tweak my profile. Maybe my approach is different. Maybe I need to talk to someone on how to do screening so that I don't end up having to spend an hour with someone who I can't spend five minutes with. Maybe I do need to chat on the phone a little bit before. Like you start problem solving and getting practical. And when you do that, it eases the stress and distress that you feel. And when you're just obsessing and going down the rabbit hole, you're actually making the stress and distress worse. And you can feel those differences viscerally in your chest, in your stomach, in your shoulders. You'll know when you're making it worse and getting more as opposed to when you're like, Ugh. right. So do you think that's what separates a successful person versus someone who's not successful? Since we all go through failure and rejection is what you do after the fact, which is a successful person will then ruminate self hate or whatever, but then they will move on to problem solving or fixing it. You think that's a difference? Yes, I do think there's a big difference with a successful person versus somebody who's not successful, but not yet successful is the term that I like. They're the successfuls and they're the not yet successfuls. I was a not yet successful in terms of writing for many years. So, but the difference um, is that if, if you, it's not about falling down, it's about the getting up. And if you spend too much time on the ground, self-inflicted, 
because you're just sitting in a corner and kind of the pity party or just ruminating or just getting stirred up and annoyed and, you know, screw all of them. And, you know, that, again, give yourself a little time to have those feelings, but don't get stuck in them. Move past them. And and then you want to, the, the many things you can do, you can reorient the goal and say like, okay, but really my goal here was this. If this way isn't working, how maybe about that way? Maybe there's another way. If this kind of writing isn't working for me, maybe I try a different kind of writing. Maybe the way in is through here rather than that door, because there are always many doors to anywhere we want to go. But then you're starting to think more productively when you're doing that. Okay, if this door, I'll try it once more, but if that doesn't work, I'm going to try the other door. So even when that doesn't work, all right, I really have a full back plan. I have a plan B. So it feels a little easier to deal with. I like that. So you basically are saying though, to try different things because they can't, what is that saying? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Right. So I like that. So it's not just about squint and try harder. It's about try differently. Right. This didn't work out for me, but me, like I remember one time I failed because I, well, this is stupid, but one time I failed because I didn't study for a test and I said, you know what? God is on my side. I'll pray and I'll be fine. And I prayed right before my exam at university. I took the exam. I failed but <laughs> afterwards. But then I was like, oh, maybe next time I'll study. Maybe praying was not enough. So that's kind of, you know. But that's such a great example because really the best combination would be study and pray you right. know, if you're going to do that yeah. because – then you're just adding, you know, like, but if you're not doing the study part, yeah, the praying got to be really intense. Yeah, but that's <laughs> where I'm sufficient. overly delusional. So I literally, people were like, do you want to study with us really quick? And I said, no, I have God on my yeah. side. <laughs> I'll pray. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a fun yeah. day. <laughs> you had a, te- you have numerous TED Talks. One of your TED Talks on why we all need to practice emotional first aid, which you already spoken briefly about self-compassion. It struck a chord with millions of people, including myself. That is how I found you. But I recall you were speaking of emotional hygiene. Can you elaborate what you meant by emotional hygiene? Yeah. So, you know, we know what physical hygiene is, right? Physical hygiene is wash your hands, dress appropriately for the weather, go for checkups. If you have a cut, cover it with a bandage so it doesn't get infected. If you have a sprain, maybe ice it or rest it. We know how to take care of our physical bodies and practice physical hygiene. We know how to practice dental hygiene. We brush and we floss and we take care of our teeth on an ongoing daily way. There is a constant maintenance of that system, the dental system, gums, dental, you know, the periodontal system, the physical system. What is our equivalent when it comes to the emotional psychological system? We don't really have one. But I'm saying that there's not a practice that a lot of people do on a daily basis, because it's known that you should be doing that on a daily basis. That is actually a good way to maintain your emotional hygiene, your emotional well-being, your psychological well-being. And yet there are a lot of practices that we have a lot of science to show that, oh man, if you do that on a daily basis, that will absolutely help. And, And so, for example, one thing, just to recap what we spoke about, when you fail or when you have a rejection, when you're in emotional pain, treating it like you would any other kind of wound is about emotional hygiene. It's not just, well, I feel rejected. It's like, do I need to do something to revive my self-esteem and my feelings of self-worth? And do I need to do something to feel less helpless and more in control and regain my sense of agency? Those are approaches of emotional hygiene, realizing, oh, something's wrong. I need to do something about that. And then you also have the preventative stuff, like dental hygiene is mostly 
preventative. Um, it's to prevent cavities. It's to prevent decay. Um, so there are many things like that in psychology. For example, gratitude exercises. Super, super useful. They create optimism, higher well-being. They make us feel more connected. So like practicing gratitude on a daily basis by journaling the beginning or the end or of the day or both about things that you're actually appreciative in life, something that happened that you're appreciative for or something that's meaningful that you're actually appreciative for and grateful for as you start your day helps highlight you and focus you on the positive. And why that's important is that we evolved, our brains evolved to protect us from danger. Our brain did not evolve to make us happy. It's just to make us alive. And so we are, by default, we are much more oriented towards scanning the horizon for danger, for distress, for problems. That's just our natural thing. We are not used to scanning the environment for blessings and grateful things and lovely things. We'll notice them if they smack us in the face, but we won't seek them out as naturally as we will the bad stuff. To balance that out, a gratitude exercise can help balance out your general orientation and perspective of the world, for example. So there's a lot of different things we can be doing to improve and to practice emotional hygiene, but it's not even in the public awareness that much that that's a thing. Right, because people don't understand the importance of emotional hygiene versus emotion, uh, physical hygiene and how much emotional hygiene can affect our, our bodies physically as well. So can you give an example of or an analogy of what happens when you don't practice emotional hygiene? Yeah, so let's just look at an example. We spoke about rejection. We'll get to later on. I know that the, this this program I'm doing with Mindbloom about rejection and failure to to combine it with with treatments for depression and anxiety. But let's look at what happens when you get rejected. A lot of people, and a lot of my patients will say this to me. They'll come back from a date that didn't go well, and they'll say this: "I'm going to get off the app for six months." I'm like, "Okay, cool. And what are you going to do instead to meet someone?" Uh, nothing. And now, why? In other words, yes, I understand you're stinging. And it's like, oh, I don't want to put myself in that situation anymore. But unfortunately, that's how you meet someone. It doesn't have to be on the app if you don't want to do the app. Are you going to sign up for a class where you might meet somebody in a class? Are you going to join some kind of meetup group to substitute? Are you going to call your friends and ask them to set you up with someone? What are you doing instead? And people don't usually think that way. They usually think, I'm just, not, I'm just uh, I need to withdraw. And then you become more lonely. And then you become disconnected. And then every, the idea of dating becomes more anxiety-provoking because avoidance supersizes anxiety. And so then slowly you're withdrawing more and more and more. And that withdrawal can lead to loneliness. And when we're lonely, that does a whole other number on us, perceptually, psychologically, emotionally. That's really damaging to us as well. And so then suddenly you can get depressed from that because you're not in contact with people. You're not out there in the world. You can see, you know, the, the, the dominoes falling. And from one incident starting, you know, suddenly you're in a bad place six months later because you just let things get worse. You just let your mind on autopilot do withdrawal, do avoidance, do all the things that it might want to do, but are not good for us. And that's why we have to take over in those moments. Got it. One of your, my favorite analogies from you that I've constantly have used and obviously given you credit for it is the emotional backpack that you've used before about putting all the stuff into the backpack that you carry. Can you do you mind re-elaborating on that? Yeah, so I, I think that, I mean, the whole principle of emotional hygiene and emotional first aid is to gather the tools 
and the techniques that kind of work for you and to create this like toolkit that you can carry with you. You know, we all have one in the medicine cabinet, toolkits for physical kinds of injuries, but to create this, this series of tools and techniques that uh, are all mental, so you don't have to carry anything with you, it's lighter as a backpack, but, but you have it with you. And then when certain things happen, you can take out a tool that you know has worked for you in the past. So for example, I remember um, when I first came to the US, you know, I was, there were, then I had a headache. There were six, I think, over the counter medications I could have bought for my headache. And I tried each of them. And I found that there was one that worked way for me, way better than the others, while other people found that the third one worked better for them and not that one. But that was really helpful because now I don't have to experiment each time. I know this works for me. And so with each time you have an emotional injury, when you have a rejection, when you have a failure, when you're lonely, when you're ruminating, when you know, when you're guilt, loss, whatever it is, and, and, you, and you've already experienced that and you've already tried out different techniques to soothe the pain, to heal a little bit more quickly, to get over it without complicating a little bit, a little better, then you know that I will, I will try that next time. I have a tool that I can use next time. And what all those things do is that's what builds emotional resilience. Emotional, because emotional resilience is about, you know, like knowing, like, I can deal with this. It's hard. It's painful, but I can deal. I've dealt with it before. I know how. You don't like to. You'd rather not, but you can. Yeah. You know, and, and that is a, is a great thing to carry with you and to know. Yes. Being kind to yourself the same way you'd be kind to your best friend if they spoke negatively about themselves. So do you think self-compassion is a game changer when it comes to dealing with failure, rejection and setbacks? A, self-compassion is a game changer, I think, in all of those ways. And, you know, like, I, I, I would really challenge all your listeners and viewers to to take it on and, and be consistent, not just choose it once in a while, but to really be mindful. Do it for a week. Be very mindful of any negative self-talk. Replace it with self-compassionate talk, i.e. what you would say to a friend in that situation, shut down the negative self-talk, literally be like, no, 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 distract yourself, sing a song to shut down that voice, whatever you need to do in the moment to make it quiet. But if you do that for a week, I promise you, you'll feel better about yourself after that week. You'll feel lighter. You'll feel more optimistic. It, it will make a significant difference. And it's, it's a free thing that you can give yourself. It's an, it's an amazing tonic that you can give yourself, but you have to have the discipline Right. To do it. And remember, your insides are trying to tell you, no, 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 but let's focus on how terrible you are. So you actually have to have, you know, the discipline to be like, no, 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 we're not dealing with you right now. I'm focusing on self-compassion, on being kind to myself, being honest, but kind to myself. Yeah. So then it, you're right. It is free, but it it is hard to be consistent. Also, it's hard to believe yourself, especially when you're in that moment where you already feel self-loathing and it feels good because we we love to be with what's familiar and if we are feeling familiar in our depression sadness we love to stay there but then if you look in the mirror every single day and you're like you're great you're amazing and you don't believe it and you want to laugh at it who cares because after day seven you're right you may actually look at yourself and you say you know what you are great and you actually may finally believe yourself that time Right. But I don't know if you can go when you're feeling really bad. I don't know if you're great and amazing is going to work, as we said, because that's a little too far out from how you're feeling. The moment. What you can say is you're really worthy of finding someone. You're really worthy of getting that job. You're really worthy of landing that writing gig. You just have to keep trying until it happens. That's self-compassionate and believable and also encouraging. It's what you would say to a friend. Right. 
So instead of saying, you're great, you're amazing, or you're the prettiest girl in the world, you start just, you're worthy. You deserve to be here just like anyone else. Just more realistic things. Got it. So then can you kind of shed light on the mind and body connection, which in your lecture on emotional pain and how, and how it physically manifests, how do emotional wounds show up physically? And then what steps can we take to address this intersection of mental and physical health? So I'm going to give one, because that's, that's, you know, I can, you can talk about that for hours because there's so many connections, but I'm going to give you one example of a connection that I think most people these days, some might know about, but not everyone knows about and I think it's super important and that is about connection and disconnection emotional connection to others and emotional disconnection from others I mentioned earlier that sometimes after we get rejected we can withdraw and that can keep us disconnected and and make us feel lonely loneliness um, which is a very common thing and is defined first of all purely subjectively it is not about you might be living with three people have tons of friends, you might still feel lonely because it depends solely on whether you feel connected emotionally, whether you feel seen, whether you feel valued, whether you feel appreciated. And you can have people around you and feel like, but they don't really know my heart. They don't really know me. And I, and, and obviously meaning you're not also opening your heart to them in certain ways, if that's the case, but you can feel really disconnected. And some person can be, you know, kind of introverted in the one hand and have one amazing best friend that they're really tight with and feel completely fulfilled. They don't need 10. And other people might need more. But when we feel lonely, it's because we're feeling that we don't have sufficient emotional connection. And loneliness has a huge and terrible physical consequence. The science shows that chronic loneliness subjects us to the same risks in terms of our overall health and longevity, how long we live, as if we were smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In other words, the science is that lonely people will die sooner, they'll get sicker, it will literally shave years off your life. It will start suppressing the function of your immune system from the moment you start to feel it. And then over time, when it's chronic, that is a real problem because it predisposes you to all kinds of illnesses and ailments because literally your immune system starts to shut down. We are social animals. We evolved in tribes, in groups. We need to feel like there's a tribe around us. There's a small community around us. It doesn't have to be a hundred people. It can be one, two, three, but we need to feel belonging, that we're a part of something. And that's an emotional feeling. And when we don't have it, our body goes into distress, whether we are aware of it or not. And that distress wears away and there's a big number. And it predisposes us to cardiovascular disease, to dementia, to all kinds of things. So it's it has a massive physiological consequence, even though it's a psychological condition. Can you give an example of how loneliness can manifest when it comes to our thoughts with what's actually real versus what's not real, but our thoughts are making that become a reality? Yes. And it's a great question. Why do people get stuck in loneliness? It seems simple, right? Well, if you're feeling lonely, off you go, connect, call a friend, do something, you know, take action, you're good to go. Why do people get so stuck in it? Because it's such a raw emotional condition. You feel so exposed and vulnerable. Because again, think of the analogy, 
lonely historically meant you were away from your tribe and that was dangerous. You were alone and vulnerable because you didn't have your protection around you. And that's how it feels, vulnerable, dangerous, alone. And, and, and what that does is it starts to create these distortions perceptually. We start to believe that the people around us who might actually be there physically if actually don't care as much as they might. We think of the friend that we haven't spoken to in a few weeks, and you go, you see, they haven't even called us. They really don't care. What doesn't occur to us in that moment is, well, we haven't called them either. They're, they're not supposed to read our mind and know that we're in distress. We could text them and say, hey, what's going on? And then if they don't respond for three weeks, fair enough. But they probably will respond. But our thought is like, if they cared, they would have reached out. They should have known. And we start thinking that way. And so that demoralizes us even more. That makes it even less worthwhile to take the risk of reaching out because our assumption is we're going to get rebuffed. We're going to get rejected again. Why do that? I'm already hurting. Why do I need to put myself out there? Don't they know that I'm sitting here by myself? Or don't they know that I'm feeling so bad? And no, they don't. They're not thinking about you that way all the time. But they care about you. So if you give them a hint, they'll probably show up. But you have to be proactive in that way. And then when we're lonely, we're so hurt. When we do reach out, we do it incorrectly. And we come across a little, like I've seen a lot of people who will do things like, you know, they'll text something like, you know, you, you, we haven't spoken in a month. Now, it sounds accusatory when you get that as a text. We haven't spoken in a month. Well, it's not my fault. You didn't call me either. If you say we haven't spoken in a month, period, I miss you, that reads completely differently. That's inviting. But we don't think to do that when we're lonely because we're so resentful and angry and upset. So it's, we, we have to really overcome those things which are really keeping us stuck and, and really keeping people, and we literally push people away when we're lonely when we need the opposite. And, and that's difficult to overcome. That's why it's such a tricky condition. It is. I, I remember at the beginning or middle of this year when I was freezing my eggs after because my hormones were going all over the place. And I recall that going through that with my hormones all over the place, it started to I started to get into depression without realizing. And I remember I had a friend staying with me and she literally in that moment asked me, so are you OK? Do you need anything? I said, no, I'm fine. I closed the door and I turned around and I said, no one cares about me. No one's checking in. No one's asking to help. And they felt normal. A second after someone did. Exactly. A second after a friend did. Because I didn't really believe it because she didn't ask me twice. You know, she should have known I didn't mean when I said that because that's the kind of person that I am. I struggle to ask for help. So she should have known, you know, and so instead I closed the door and right away it was all these thoughts. No one cares about me. This is validating exactly what I always felt about myself. I'm nothing. I'm a no. And it just, you know, it went. And it was, it was Luckily, I was able to eventually attach to figure out where my emotions were coming from. For me, I'm a very logical person. So once I figured out it was because of my hormones were all over the place, I, I was able to breathe. Right. But that is how wild our brains can lie to us, you know? And I think people don't realize that. It's a perfect example, though. It's such a great, great... I mean, sorry, so sorry. It's not great. I'm so sorry you went through that. That sounds it terrible. It is a great example. But it's a, but it's a really representative example because somebody, literally a friend, is literally concerned and asks how you're doing and you're so in such a bad place. You're like, I'm fine. And then feel like no one cares when she was right there. Exactly. You just couldn't reach out because you were hurting so much. There's the trick with loneliness. And so the tricky part is that you have to somehow 
take a leap of faith and do it even though it doesn't feel good, even though it feels dangerous, even though you kind of are resentful because she should have asked twice. Why didn't she ask twice? You know, like you have to get over that because beyond that, you know, open the door again and say, actually, I changed my mind. I'm not. And she does, oh, honey. And she comes over and suddenly you're like, you know, but unless you take that step. For those such as myself who are unfamiliar with the current uh, ketamine treatment that you're working with, Mind Bloom, for people who are going through anxiety, depression, dealing with rejection, and so on, what what is that? Okay, <laughs> so uh, ketamine is a psychedelic, and it's the first psychedelic that's been approved to treat depression, anxiety, primarily in the U.S. and it's been approved for twenty years. Traditionally, it was administered in psychiatry offices um, in an infusion. And so that was that. But then once the pandemic came around and people couldn't get to psychiatry offices, um, there was permission to use it at home. And Mindbloom is the company that does the most at-home psychedelic treatment with, with ketamine. And at home, what it is, it's a tablet that you get and you put it under your tongue and then you spit it out after a certain amount of time. But it's a psychedelic. And why that's important is because it's a treatment modality that has been shown and this and and Mindbloom just released a study of twelve hundred people who went through treatment for depression and anxiety at home and with ketamine and shown really, I mean, ridiculous level uh, improvements like eighty something percent improved in sim- you know in symptoms and sixty something percent had clinical improvements. I I don't know if antidepressants are that effective. You know, like it, it it's really that's a very, very uh, good impact. And what ketamine does and what psychedelics do that other medications uh, do not is that psychedelics improve and increase neuroplasticity in the brain. In other words, it improves temporarily the brain's ability to create connections, neural connections, and to create new connections and new pathways. So you can like, learn new tricks more robustly when you're doing it by a ketamine uh, uh, therapy. But I wanted to say a couple of things about how it's done because there are a lot of safety protocols around this. This is psychedelic. And the safety protocols are, first of all, you have to be evaluated by a uh, psychiatrist, by a mental health psychiatrist to A, diagnose you with either depression or anxiety to make sure you don't have conditions that would be counterproductive for this kind of uh, treatment. And then once you get approved, every session you have to have somebody with you because it's at home. So you have to have somebody with you. But you also get a guide. And, And here's how psychedelic treatments work in general. They work in three sections. The first one is you have to kind of ahead of time set your intentions for what you want that session to do. We know that with psychedelics, two things are important. Set, your mindset, and that's what you're doing in the first session. And the setting, you have to be in an environment that's conducive, that's that's feels safe. And that's why we have, it's at home, in the person's day, when you're in a comfortable kind of place. And in the program that I created for them, I do all three of those. In other words, there's a video that I have for each of the sessions to help you set your intentions. Then there's a um, an, a guided meditation. It's that's just audio. Then you're lying with your eyes closed after you take the medication with headphones, and that's me guiding you through a certain meditation during which you go through this trip. And again, you're tripping a little bit, so you're in an altered state. But that altered state is one with 
much less judgment, much less negative self-talk. It's a much more freeing, larger consciousness kind of state. And that's where you're more susceptible to kind of seeing things in a different way through that guided meditation. And then after that session, there is an integration session in which I, the videos of me and a material where you try and kind of put things together and look at specific tools that you can use. And that is one session. So, so the, the whole approach there is to create a, a treatment program that and, and mine specifically does focus on emotional first aid, on rejection and on failure. And the assumption there is that it's not just about depression and anxiety, but it's about elevating your emotional health along the way. In between, you have to pra- have good habits, as we said, like emotion, practice emotional hygiene along the way. That is going to help with depression. It's going to help you know, alleviate and it's going to help maintain you, you know, in, a, in, a, in a better uh, state. So that that's how that works. And, and the program looks at things like resilience and rumination and rejection and failure and connection. And it targets all of those things. And it's just launched. So I'm very excited and eager to see how it will do. But it literally just launched last week. And so people need six treatments. It's going to be a while till we start getting the data. But we have every reason to think that this is something that will be very beneficial. And I'm super excited. That talk that you mentioned, there's a book, Emotional First Aid, and all those things are now actually a treatment modality. And I'm really hopeful that together with the ketamine therapy, it can really make a difference for people that's long lasting. What would you say some misconceptions are when it comes to this type of a practice? Psychedelics had, have had a bad rap for 50 years, um, you know, incorrectly so. Like MDMA, for example, Molly, ecstasy, and that, that's, that's MDMA, started out as a therapeutic treatment for PTSD in the 60s and 70s. It started out, it was a really effective, and then it got into the clubs and it became a, a you know, a, a drug people were using in clubs. And that's when the administration was like, well, oh, people are actually enjoying it. Forget it. You know, let's not, let's take that away. And so they criminalized it um, along with other psychedelics. Um, but now in the past 20 years, starting with ketamine, and now that, you know, both MDMA and psilocybin, another psychedelic, are in final trials and are going for FDA approval within the next year, probably. So because there's a recognition that let's not toss out the baby with the bathwater, these drugs are really impactful for certain conditions. And for me as a therapist, I remember when ketamine came out, I had patients who, they tried all the meds. Nothing was working for them. Their depression was really profound and nothing was really helping them. And they were really, and here came something and it really made a difference. And it was exciting to see something new come along after so many years that, wow, and it makes a difference quickly, the ketamine treatments. You know, sometimes within one or two sessions, people feel a real difference. And the interesting thing is since we launched this program last week, a ton of people have contacted me privately who I know, who I never knew had gone through ketamine therapy, but are saying to me like, you didn't know this, but I went through ketamine therapy and it was amazing for me. And people are like, oh, I'm so glad you're doing this because I'm a fan and I'm a, and I've had to use it and I've done this. And I'm like, oh, there's so many, but it's, again, we don't really talk about these things that, that openly, but, but it's heartening to know that so many people have had a really good experience with. But it's under supervision and then also to make sure that no one 
accidentally abuses it because with any drug that's well you can't because you yeah. get you know you get your thing for that thing you put it under your it's a tablet you put it under your tongue you you know it, it releases and then you spit it out and then you're done with your medication you're not getting a bag full you know right. like you're getting uh, <laughs> uh the dosages that that you need for the treatment and not more what would you say the most common questions that you get when it comes to this practice I think a lot of people are curious. I mean, it, uh, they associate psychedelics with, you know, um, and especially ketamine has been used in, you know, as a, as a, as a drug in, in, in clubs. Um, it, it's, it's been used as a tranquilizer by, by veterinarians and like, isn't that a veterinarian tranquilizer? I'm like, yeah, but it's different dosages when you're giving it to a horse to calm them down than when you're giving it to a person. So it's, it's, you know, it's like, so people, you know, are unfamiliar with it. And again, there's been so many decades of labeling these things as dangerous, as problematic, as, you know, now you're, you know, you're, you're abusing drugs, you're this. And so people have a, a bad association to it, but it's, it's about the dosage, the set, the setting, how you're using it. This comes with a therapeutic program it comes with a guide that helps you through it comes with psychiatric supervision it comes with the you know um, mindloom even has like a, a, a support group that you can join the people who are going through the treatment so you even get that connection part that you know tribal you know like community part you can talk with other people who are going through it and share your experiences with them it's a very different setup than how it's used you know how it might have been used when it was, you know, used as a, as a party drug. Right. Um, this is really in, in the, the protocols are quite tight and, you know, and again, FDA approved. And so these are all things that have been looked at and, and, and uh, have been authorized uh, because they're very, very useful. Are there any lifestyle adjustments that a person needs to change in order to have the most effectiveness from the ketamine practice? Well, not, I mean, just that part. I mean, this is the part about the emotional first aid. Yes. But I mean by lifestyle adjustments, you have to adjust how you think. You have to adjust about whether you practice emotional hygiene. You have to change your approach to emotional well-being so that it's one in which you are being more aware of and more proactive about maintaining your emotional and your mental health. Um, that would be the lifestyle uh, uh, change that I would advocate for everyone, whether you're taking ketamine treatments, whether you're depressed, whether you're anxious or not, because that's just something important to do. So what happens after you do those six, after someone does those six sessions, is that that's it for life? They don't do it again or do they do it every couple of months? It's very individual. Some people have a benefit and they're like, I'm good to go. Some people revisit, they do a maintenance session of one or two, or they might do the whole course again a year later. However, it's very individual. And, and that's the that's re that's reality about um, all psychiatric medications, uh, that all medications for depression and anxiety, they work differently for different people. Some people, you know, will get on an antidepressant and get off it after six months, and some people will stay on it for three years, and some people it doesn't work for, and it's all very individual. But yes, it's not, it, for some people, this bumped them out of something and they were good to go, and for some people, they need to revisit and they just and 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 that's the idea because the initial program that Mindbloom had was directly you know depression and anxiety. The goal of adding these kinds of programs, like the emotional first aid program, the rejection and failure program, is to have a second offering that people can either start with or use if they're coming back um, for another round. Um, and that's the whole idea of it. There. 
Is there anything else that I should ask you in order to give my listeners the best knowledge or understanding of whether or not ketamine treatment is right for them? So first of all, it's right for you if you have a clinical diagnosis or would get a clinical diagnosis of depression and anxiety. It's not for just a bad mood. It's not for an anxious day. It's when you're really struggling with um, something. But if you are struggling with depression and anxiety, and again, part of the program there is you do speak to a psychiatrist and they do diagnose you with a yay or nay. Um, but if you have a question about it, if you think that might be something, then by all means, mindbloom.com and, and, and find out, uh, schedule an appointment and, and, and see what's, what's what. But I, I especially, if there are any listeners who've struggled with depression, struggled with anxiety, they're on all kinds of meds or they have been and they're just not getting the results that they wanted, it's certainly something that I would recommend that they consider because, you know, it has fewer side effects, it's it's briefer, you get results more quickly, and it does kind of expand your consciousness, your perception. It does do something there. And, and so, um, and the neuroplasticity allows you to make changes that stick for longer. It's certainly something that I would encourage them to look into. Again, if they're dealing, if they think they're dealing with, with real depression or anxiety. Clinical depression. As many know... Yes because I've spoken about this before, there's a difference between feeling depressed, being sad, and actual depression. Three different things. Um, So now that we've covered all that, I I did want to kind of jump back in really quickly to one or two questions that I had, which was around loneliness and heartbreak. I mean, when I found you a couple of years ago was because of your TED talk that really struck a chord with me. And it was about you talking about going through loneliness and your, the story that you share about you and your twin brother living apart. And then you also delved into heartbreak and what you go through. So do you kind of, even though we're talking, I mean, rejection is also heartbreak. So can you, do mm-hmm. you mind kind of delving, diving into what we experience when we go through heartbreak? Yeah, so so heartbreak is a is a second uh, was my second uh, TED talk. Yeah, and I know. I I just realized I jumped between the two TED talks. I apologize. No, but they're connected, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all they're they're related, and you know everything I do is got some kind of through line to it. Um, but the heartbreak one was an interesting thing because, you know, our, our typical thought about heartbreak um, is we kind of if we're in it we're suffering greatly. And if it's someone else, there's a part of us that doesn't take it that seriously when it's adults. And certainly if you have a 50-year-old who's heartbroken, you're like, dude, you're an adult. Get over it kind of thing. What we don't understand about heartbreak is two things. Um, number one, the experience of emotional pain is about as severe as it can get. And it is really the equivalent of severe physical pain. They've literally done experiments where they looked at the brains of people who are in severe physical pain and compared them to the brains of people who are having severe heartbreak. And sometimes the experts can't quite tell the difference between those scans. They they look really similar. We are really suffering when we're heartbroken. But the other thing that's so interesting is that when you look at other brain scans and you see what's going on in the brain, when we're heartbroken, you see the same thing that goes on in the brain of heroin addicts when they're withdrawing from heroin or cocaine addicts when they're withdrawing from cocaine. It is a feeling of withdrawal. Now, when you think of a cocaine addict, of a heroin addict, 
one thing you will be clear about is, I understand the desperation. They're addicted. Of course, they're trying to break in there and steal something to get, to get money, to get a fix. Of course, they're lying. Of course, they're doing all kinds of terrible things just to get a fix. It's heroin. They're that desperate. I get that. I think it's terrible, but I get it. It's the same thing with heartbroken people, and you'll see the same uh, behavior. They don't need to break in to an ATM to get money, but what they will do is send like a 100 texts in an hour. They'll go to the person's workplace and you know try singing or begging. They will do crazy stuff to try and get their fix, to try and get that person back, because they're dealing with that same level of pain and desperation that an addict is dealing with. And if you know that, then A, you would have much more compassion for somebody who's heartbroken. But if you're heartbroken and you know that, it's very reassuring because otherwise you think, I'm going crazy. I'm doing the craziest things. What's wrong with me? I've never been like this. This is why you're like this. So it's kind of important to know the brain is going crazy when you're heartbroken and it's making you do really, really difficult and extreme things. So what's the healing process after a breakup that you think individuals can effectively do in order to navigate through grief and pain? So first of all, good point. Heartbreak is a form of grief. Yeah. And we don't think of it that way because we think of grief as actually losing someone. Oh, that is Not- the only way I view it. For me, my boyfriend died. That's how, and I deal with the grief of it, of the relationship yes, instead. Yes, a lot of people, <laughs> but if a lot of people, when you say grief, they think about death. Oh. And a heartbreak isn't, isn't grief. Heartbreak is grief. It is a grief process. That's completely true. The way you're thinking about it is completely accurate. Heartbreak is a grief process. Um, and so as in other forms of grief, you go through these stages of like denial and acceptance and da, 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 and all of that. But really what it's about is that you have lost a central part of your identity in the sense of if you were in a partnership with someone, you were a we. It was what we did this weekend. What are we doing for the holidays? I don't have to figure out, you know, it's Friday. I don't have to make plans because either we'll do something or we'll just hang out. I'll be with someone. I don't have to figure that out. And I know, and, you know, and, and they turned me onto this kind of music. So now I like that music. And there's, it, it really changes how you think of you go from an I to a we, all of your life, the factual parts of it, you have your favorite places, you have, you know, if you're living with someone, it's partly their stuff, partly your stuff. And then when you lose that, you lose a friend network because all their people are usually going to go with them. So if, and there's a lot of times where one person is entirely in the circle of the other, and then they are left with nothing. They're left with no friends. They didn't cultivate those relationships. They are in such a bad place because they literally have nothing. And so A, they, they've lost their partner, they've lost their companion, they've lost all their social network. A lot of people um, you know, have lost income because the other person was supporting and suddenly their socioeconomic situation can change and they can suddenly feel really tight or poor even. Uh, for a lot of people, they're just you know, like half their uh, furniture just left, half the pictures. So there's a huge rebuild that needs to happen. And people, you know, people say they have to get over heartbreak. Yes, but you have to rebuild. You actually have to rebuild your life. That's the active healing process. It's making them, you know, like giving them less presence, less stage time in your thoughts, 
but then actively rebuilding your life. If you have to replace the friends and go to a different gym and replace your social contacts and find a different person to see movies with and get the new pictures for the wall, and there's just so much you have to do to rebuild, to fill all these voids that heartbreak creates. So that's the active process, which most of us neglect. We just think like, I have to, you know. But the other thing that people do is they want to stay in touch. You know, they want to stalk them on social media. They want to go and look and like, but how can they be smiling? And because they just broke up with me and I can't stop crying, how can they be smiling? And like, hey, it's social media. And B, they've been thinking about this for months before they broke up. So they're in a much more advanced stage of this than you, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's our habits and our tendencies are very negative again because they're just very indulgent of the drug. When we need to be having no contact, we need to be going cold turkey from the drug. So you just mentioned social media, and I, I recall that your discussion on the emotional repercussions of social media garnish widespread attention. So how can individuals then strike a balance between staying connected online and feeling connected with people and then safeguarding their mental well-being with all the pressures and comparisons of other people or looking at their ex? Okay, so first of all, as a general rule, I'm going to give like very general rules of thumb. General rule of thumb, if you're not feeling great, if you're feeling anxious, depressed, heartbroken, lonely, not a time to go on social media. Because when you're not feeling great, and social media is very highly curated, people put the good moments there, few people put the bad moments there. All you're going to see is everyone else seems to be in such a great place. By the way, if you go to your own social media, you'll probably see yourself in a great place. It's just not where you are right now. But but it doesn't register that way when you're, you know, so when you're upset, not the time to go on social media with one exception, which I'll get to. So in general, that will make you feel worse. When you're feeling lonely, it'll make you feel like, look at everyone with their friends. No one cares about me. So it's a really bad thing to do when you're feeling bad with one exception. If you're going on there, because a lot of people connect through social media. You know, they don't use text, they use DMs, they don't, etc. If you're going on there to connect, to actually reach out to someone, to check in with someone, because you're scrolling and you're saying, oh, here's a friend, they seem to have been on vacation. If you're then texting them to say, oh, that looked great, how was your vacation? And they say, oh, mine was fine, how are you doing? And you're starting a conversation, that's okay, because you're connecting, you're being active. But most of us don't do that when we're feeling bad, we're very passively scrolling and it's going to make us feel worse. So you have to manage social media and use it when it's right for you, when it will do something useful for you, and stay off it when it will do something harmful for you. And you have to have that self-discipline. Well, it's hard to have the self-discipline, especially because when we are, whether we're in a good place or in a bad place, our brains look to validate those emotions. So if I think everyone hates me, the last thing I'm going to do is, you know, Look, you know, assume everyone loves me afterwards. If I think everyone hates me, I most likely will then go on social media to look for the validation that no one invited me to this party. Yep. No one liked this photo. Yep. Because my brain wants to validate my current thought. Right. But that's your brain on autopilot. That is the default. If you take over, and this is the whole point about, you know, we're saying like your emotional well-being requires you to disengage the autopilot. Emotional well-being requires you to, one of the things I always say is, you know, people say that the the human brain is the most magnificent, uh, complicated machine in the universe. Um, It might be, but it requires adult supervision. (laughs) 
and you have to be the adult as well as the brain. And so you have to manage yourself. You can't just let your brain do the thing. So if you're feeling that way, well, no one likes me and I feel like validating it, but you're catching that, you can go, well, it's going to be easy to validate. I can just go in there and see everyone ignoring me. But maybe the one thing I need to do is reach out to one person. So let me go on there and I'll allow myself to scroll, but I have to reach out to one person and start a small conversation just to remind myself, just to not get too too far into the bunker, too far down the rabbit hole. Give yourself a, a challenge, a task. It's not going to feel like a good thing to do, but you'll know it's the healthy thing to do. Or maybe you say to yourself, maybe I'll do a quick exercise to revive my self-esteem, to kind of make a list of all the qualities I think I have that are really, that I know I have that are very, very meaningful, etc., etc. Maybe before I contact this friend, I'll look at pictures of us having fun together. Mm -hmm. And then I'll contact them and say like, oh, I was just looking at those pictures and I miss you. And that's going to be more connective. So, but you have to take over. You can't be an autopilot. Got it. And especially when you're feeling bad, that's terribly tempting and compelling. You have to take over. I agree. So with social media, there's loads of research when it comes to social media, how even though we think we're staying connected more with others, there's loads of, of um, research that shows that people are more depressed now than ever, no matter how much more connected we are connected on the Internet. So how are, can people differentiate between uh, fake connection versus real connection that actually makes us feel connected with others because there's such a difference between also, well, I'll stop there and you just answer that. Okay. Um, real connection requires something to move here. You have to feel it. And so that requires a certain slight emotional vulnerability on your part or openness, you know, at least. When I said, look at the pictures of your friend and you having fun together, because then when you'll reach out, you go, oh, look at those pictures, how are you? you? You're feeling a little warm toward them by looking at those pictures, by reminding yourself. And then when you say, oh, I just looked at those pictures of us doing that thing, and they're like, oh, that was so much fun. Immediately you feel connected um, to them. So you're actually doing something. There's things you can do to kind of create that. If you want to have a conversation with somebody like old school, like on the phone, um, or let's say, you know, in person, to have a connective conversation means connecting emotionally, it, not just small talk. Small talk is not connective. It doesn't really move the dial. Something has to move here. And for that, you have to share like, oh, you know, you chit chat and then you could say, ah, I've been a little low lately. I haven't been having an easy time. What's going on? Oh, you know, I don't even want to talk about it, but I just wanted to tell you that it's so great to see you because it really kind of is distracting me and take my mind off things. And the other person can go, oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm sorry, I'm going through a hard time. Connective, you know, like just talking about sports or just talking about, you know, chit chat or gossip, less connective. So it's got to be something between the two of you that you're acknowledging right. to them, that they're acknowledging to you. I am hearing from, I think from the beginning of this interview till the end right now is that all, all it keeps telling me is that you have to be brave with everything you do. It's kind of, you do have to sometimes take the first step, whether it's, you know, you're feeling sad, you have to be brave because you can't expect other people to read your mind. So you have to let someone know. You have to be brave if you feel lonely by calling someone. And, you know, you may get rejected, but you have to, you know, try to call someone. Whether you're going through a breakup, you have to be brave by finally deciding it's time to, you know, set a new plan. This won't be my life anymore, accepting, moving on. So it's it's the part of always just being brave versus, because I remember for the longest time, I used to feel lonely, even though I was surrounded by many people, just the 
way you were a university when you're away from your brother, your twin brother. And I remember I told my mother I felt lonely because I felt like people didn't get me. And then my mom said something that really made sense. And she said, well, you know, you're going to keep feeling no one gets you if you're going to keep pretending to be someone else. Because I was constantly so closed off, pretending to to be, I'm okay, everything's fine. And yeah, she was right. That's why I felt lonely because I kept pretending to be fine. It wasn't until I finally said, you know what, I'm not doing so great. And I was just so surprised by, you know, the the other person accepting me not doing great and asking how I am. So what were you gonna say? But but you're very but you're very right. It it's it is bravery. Because look, if it were easy to be emotionally healthy, many more people would be. But we're not. We are more depressed than ever, more anxious than ever, more lonely than ever, more stressed than ever. I mean, uh, our mental health is, is not in a good place globally across age groups. Like, for example, people always used to, I don't know if that's the case anymore, but used to associate loneliness with geriatrics. Oh, they're 80 and, and, and living alone. They're the lonely people. But the loneliest cohort are, uh, I think it's around 18 to, to 32-year-olds. It's the young people. They're, they're way more lonely than the older people. So, and, and, but you have to recognize that. And, and, so, and the thing about the bravery is it's not easy. And I always give that message, and I wish I didn't have to because I wish I could say, here's an easy thing you can do. But there is no easy thing you can do. It's all work. It's all hard. If you get into the habit of it, like, for example, I'm in the habit of gratitude and I'm in the habit of self-compassion. It's not that effortful for me. I might sometimes catch myself saying something negative and I'll be like, ah, and that's all it takes. And I'm onto the, because I've been doing it for so long and I'm, you know, was mindful about doing it. So it became a habit. It becomes easier once it's habitual. It becomes easier once you truly do the buy-in of, I need to do this for myself. I need to make myself happier. I can't just wait for the world to make me happier. I can make me happier right now. Right now, I mean, going forward, you know, I can have more life satisfaction. I can have more connection. I can feel better about myself. I can give myself that gift. It's going to be work. It's going to be difficult and it's going to require bravery because it's often easier to just wallow. So you're right. It's bravery, effort, and work. I wish it weren't, but it is. But that does lead you to an oasis at the end, to a, to a really good place. How can people differentiate between having comfortable temporary sol- solitude and just enjoying being alone to then in moving into chronic loneliness? So a lot of people enjoy being alone. And there's nothing wrong with it. And again, if you're enjoying being alone, or if you're like, oh, I really want to have some time to myself, not a problem at all. It's the feelings of disconnection are feelings of disconnection. It's feeling like, who's there for me? No one gets me. No one's, those are the feelings you have to address. You know, I, I speak sometimes with people who have um, young kids and they're like, oh, please, 10 minutes alone, please just 10 minutes without somebody tugging on me would be lovely. Please, you know, they cannot get enough of that. They don't get any of it. Um, but they might feel actually quite lonely because, you know, the, we know that uh, mothers, when they have their first kid and they're often by themselves for a long time of the day, the, you know, they might have a partner even who comes home in the evening, but they're spending so much time alone with an infant. And so they can feel super lonely. And everyone's like, but 
you know, you have a kid, aren't you happy? And they're like, yeah. but but they just they were used to seeing friends and having colleagues and da da da, da and connecting all day, and now they're without, you know, and and so. It, it, there are a lot of situations in which we might feel lonely. If we recognize that, then we can start taking the steps to figure out what to do about it, to to be brave and reach out, to try something. Um, that's why you know, like mother groups are great with infants, like you know, because the infants can play and the mothers can connect, and that's super important. But there are always solutions as long as you have the wherewithal and the mindset of I need to find them because this is not okay right now. What's a question that you always wish someone asked you, but they never did that you wanted to say? <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, Cause I get asked a lot of questions. <laughs> I do a lot of interviews, um, but look in, in this context, it's, it's one that it's the one that you just brought up. And, and, and I'm truly saying that because it's something that often gets left out. And then I finish an interview and I'm like, ah, wish I would have worked that in, but I wasn't asked this idea of it's not, easy. It takes effort, you know, and the same is true of our physical health, by the way. If you want to eat healthy, to work out, to have a healthy body, that's a lot of effort. It's a lot of investment. People can go to the gym five days a week, an hour each time, you know, everything they're eating, they're thinking about, you're so mindful and you're putting, but it's natural for you to do it when it comes to your physical health. It's a little less natural or much less natural to do it when it comes to our emotional health, but it's the same principle. It requires effort. It requires investment. It requires something that's hard. It's not easy. And if, and I think it's so important for people to know it's hard, that you have to be brave because then when they hit that hurdle and it's like, wow, this is really difficult. They won't be like, okay, not for me. They'll I know I'm prepared for that. I know this is going to be difficult. I know that if I want to adopt this new habit, I'm going to have to be really determined and really try hard. Otherwise, it's not going to stick. You you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. And so that's one I typically is not usually brought up, and I'm so glad that you did. No, honestly, be I would say I don't mean to toot your horn or whatever the American saying is, but it it wasn't until I found your TED talks a couple of years ago that it completely changed my perspective on how to deal with emotional resilience and how to take care of myself emotionally. Because I genuinely used to get physically sick because my immune system would go down when I didn't take care of my emotional self, and I kept thinking I'm so strong. For for not crying. I'm so strong for not talking about my issues because I just got to get through. But then I would get physically ill. And my mom kept saying, you can't be everything for everyone else if you're nothing to yourself. And it's so true that now I still get all those same emotions, but I catch myself. I'm like, wait, I'm not feeling okay. Before I get physically ill, what's I check in with myself now more often. And but I, I, it's because of your TED Talks that I watched where you talked about, um, you had this one analogy about if a boy gets physically hurt, scrapes its knee, he's not going to keep playing uh, soccer or football. He's going to take care of his knee. And it's the same thing with heartbreak and our emotional self or your speech about loneliness. I was going through a really hard time. And then I watched your speech about your brother and how it was you guys' birthday and you, you, the call got this can, um, you kept waiting for him to call you and he didn't call and you were so heartbroken and you felt like no one cares. Then the next day you realized the phone was unplugged and you, he suddenly called you and you said, and he, and you were so upset thinking he doesn't love you. And then he said, but why didn't you call me then? 
which is so true how we feel about loneliness. And you also had that emotional backpack. I'm just, I'm just trying to encourage everyone to listen to all of your TED Talks. But you had that emotional backpack, how it gets heavier if you don't share with people. You put more and more books and eventually you can't carry that backpack. And it's, and I'm, I swear, I don't mean again to toot your horn, but listening to those and really taking it in, I had to be brave enough to start changing how I was approaching life by telling people when I'm not okay, which is so hard for me. But I just know it's so important for me not to take care of myself emotionally or the physical stuff is out the window without it. So thank you. Right. <laughs> Sorry for well, that whole thank speech. Thank you. That was very kind. No, that was very kind and I'm, 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 I'm touched. Thank you so much. Is there anything else I can ask you that can really open um, the listener's mind or eyes or some last encouragement of words from you? I, I just, this idea of, um, you just said it again. I'm just keep using the things you said because you said them and I want to highlight them. Um, you check in with yourself. You, you take your emotional temperature periodically. And, and we don't do that uh, at all, and we should do that regularly because we're on autopilot. We're just getting through the day. We do, but you have to stop and go. Like, wait, how has this week been for me? How am I feeling? What's what do I need? What what am I not getting? What are the feelings that I have? What am I struggling with? Or what am I grateful for? Or what really went well? Just regular check in and ask, how am I doing? It is fundamental, but we don't uh, do it. We have to pause life and do it. Um, and, and do it really as objectively as we can and try and figure out, you know, maybe there's something that I need that I'm not giving myself, et cetera. Maybe there's something that I think is okay, but maybe it's not okay. You don't know until you ask. So pause to self-reflect and ask yourself, how am I doing? What do I wish was different? What do I wish was better? What do I wish I could do, you know, in a, in a more successful way? Um, and start asking questions that will alert you to the changes you need to make. And all of those changes in your emotional self-being also has to do with what you consume. And it's not just the food. It's also what you consume on social media, what you consume around you. So if you're constantly around negative friends or you're constantly on social media seeking to argue with others and things like that, it does affect the rest of your day. If you wake up and you look at people fighting, you think, well, I'm not the one fighting, but it will affect the rest of your day to be more negative, to be more confrontational with others. So I think that's also just as important as doing doing your um, gratitude journal and things like that. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, emotions are infectious in both directions. So who you surround yourself with, if, if you're spending your day going to uh, sites and just trying to find people that you disagree with and telling them how much you disagree and how much you hate them, you are that's what you're spending your day doing, focusing on hate, disagreement, discord. That's painting your world and, and, and your sense of what the world is about. Um, which is skewed, very much so. So, A, I always think if you're going to follow people, follow people you disagree with because it'll give you an insight into how they're thinking. You might disagree with everything, but at least you'll understand why they're thinking the way. And when people I disagree with, I always, I might disagree vehemently. I might think they're the, mo- the wrong, so wrong. But I will, if I'm talking to them enough or asking them enough, I'll at least understand why they have the opinion that from their perspective, that makes sense. They might be misinformed. They might have the wrong facts. They might have missing facts. But from what they think and know, yeah, that makes sense. And then it it softens you a bit. Then you're less, a little less angry. But how could you think that? Oh, that's how. It humanizes them. Kind of thing. Yes. 
it humanizes them, but it also, the, the, the empathy, the, the perspective taken, like, okay, I get how you think, I completely disagree, but I get it. You know, and, and then you're less angry. And so seeking to understand is always the antidote to being angry, because once you understand, you can't be as angry. That is very true. I, I love that, seeking to understand with everything in life, why someone didn't hire you, why this person feels fell out of love with you, why a lot of things happen, seeking to understand. That is true. I like that. Um, where can people find you? Um, guywinch.com, G-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. You'll have links to my TED Talks, my books, my podcast. Um, you can find me uh, the program at mindbloom.com, uh, mindbloom.com, open your mind, uh, .com. And, and that's where you can find the, the ketamine therapy and, and my program there um, as well. And um, you can find me in all the social media uh, platforms. Again, it's just Guy Winch, and the links are at guywinch.com, so people can get everything through there. Perfect. I'm going to include that in the description of the episode and the bio, so then you guys can find all of that there from his website to the ketamine therapy if you feel that it's right for you. And I'm sure you'll get more information on there as well. Is there anything else that I missed that I should have asked you? No, but I really want to wish your listeners and viewers, I want to, and you especially, a, a happy new year. It's probably going to air, probably I'm assuming after around or after the, the new year, but I hope you had happy holidays and happy new year. And it's always a time, the beginning of the year to make changes. So I would like, you know, to suggest make changes to improve your emotional health. It's the best investment you can make. I agree. And I, I think also when you change your perspective on the pursuit of happiness, because a lot of people pursue, seek happiness, which is why they never find happiness because they think it's a, what is it? A destination. So instead is just, if you go through life with the journey, appreciating your gratitude journal, being grateful. I have a roof over my head. I have food in my belly right now. Like I am so lucky and life is good. Then I think people will find happiness better, faster. I agree. The happiness, the research is that people find happiness by being on the right path, not necessarily by reaching the destination because that's anticlimactic. The path to the destination, when you know you're on the right path, when you know you're moving toward a goal, that's where the happiness comes from. I love that. Okay, well, anyway, you guys, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to check out Guy Winch and watch all his set talks and take a look at Mind Bloom with the ketamine uh, practice and therapy. <laughs> thank you so much again for listening. I hope you have a beautiful day. And thank you so much, Guy, for coming on my show.